Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. December, uh, John and I were working, what, 22, 23, <laughs> we 24 to bottom. December 2018. Yeah, and yeah. then there was a crater, and there was a whole bunch of notes that said get on board. But there was one note that had the courage to, like, get on board and also mention magnitude. And he said up 20%. And after everybody picked themselves up off the floor laughing, said, Ben Laidler, you're out of your I mind. remember it. This crazy guy turns up from HSBC and starts talking about massive upside in 2019 and everyone's looking at him like he's crazy including me I'm really pleased to say that the former chief equity strategist of HSBC and now the CEO of Tower Hudson Research Ben Laidler joins us on the phone Ben a fantastic call through 2019 and as Tom and I and Lisa have been discussing for weeks months if not years now the courage to stay invested when everybody is obsessed with the downside risk Ben how important is that story right now yeah, very. I mean, you know, to, to Tom's point, you know, I don't really know how the uh, coronavirus thing, um, you know, pans out. Right. We have some sort of historical precedent. But, you know, I, ultimately, I, I think um, I, I think markets are sort of going to be fine here. Right. I mean, I think the global business cycle is, is sort of stabilizing whether the coronavirus, um, you know, delays that a quarter and whether we need a bit more policy stimulus. You know, I don't know. But ultimately, I think this is a macro narrative of a, a sort of stabilization uh, of uh, GDP, a, a stabilization of earnings, um, you know, particularly in the U.S. I mean, the, the U.S. earnings recession, I think, is now over uh, with the fourth quarter after, after three quarters of negative earnings. Um, and, and, I think, um, and I think valuations, which people think are super expensive, I actually think they're, I, I can sit here for 10 minutes and, and justify them. I, I think they're very well supported by a whole bunch of um, reasons in this narrative that they're very expensive versus history. I think just, you know, it's sort of a little bit intellectually lazy. And this is the fact that you know, we now have a huge tech sector. The bond yields are very low. That the U.S. is growing more than any other developed market out there, and the Fed can still cut rates if it if, if it wants to. No one else can. Well, let's stress test that intellectual laziness, shall we? A little bit, Ben. I won't be as brutal as you. I think there's a lot of reasons to be cautious, to be less constructive, to be not the big Uber bull that we saw perhaps through parts of 2019. What did they get wrong, though, Ben? I don't want to call them the doom crew because I think their worries are rational. They're well reasoned. Yeah. What did they get wrong, though, Ben? Yeah, so I, I, you know, I, I think what, what are the two big risks out there today? Because they're the same as they were back in Q4 18, right? I mean, you know, which is um, which is that we get a big economic slowdown, um, and you know, all the focus is on China, right? That's 30, 40 percent of global GDP growth. It's it, it's reasonably opaque. We think they have the policy flexibility, but they also have a lot of debt, right? So that you know, and the coronavirus just plays right into that again. So you know, China and and how that feeds into the global economy is a big one, and the amount of of, of policy flexibility there is out there globally. And, and that's obviously been getting less and less over the years. So people have been getting more and more uh, worried about it. The Fed has more than anybody else. You know, you know, negative rates in Europe and 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 and, the, and, and you know, essentially in Japan. Um, you know, those are the two issues. It, it's the it, it's policy flexibility and and, um, and and global growth. I want to pick up on the policy flexibility. How much is your bullish call hinged on more stimulus from both the Fed and the PBOC? Um. I mean, the PBOC, I think, is, is, is going to introduce, you know, liquidity and credit measures here to support, you know, GDP at, at, at current levels. But I think that's very coronavirus uh, driven. 
the um, in, in, in terms of the Fed, I, I think the Fed just needs to be flexible. I mean, you know, why did we get this big sell-off in, in Q4-18? You know, a big part of that was, you know, people thinking the Fed was making a policy mistake by staying overly cautious uh, for too long. So, I, you know, I think, um, you know, the Fed's just cut three times here. Now they're on hold for the moment. I think they just need to be, um, you know, flexible. And, um, and you know, growth in, GDP growth in the U.S. is still above potential. Mm, yeah. um, you know, let's not right. forget that. And the Fed's, just, and the Fed's just cut three times. So I think there's a lot of right. sort of insurance out there. Um, for, for GDP right. growth and, and, and frankly, for, for U.S. earnings. I mean, not to dwell on U.S. earnings, yeah. but, you know, we're, we're, we're going to get 1% earnings growth uh, this quarter, which doesn't sound like very much, but it comes with a 40% you know, negative drag from the energy sector and a 5 percentage point negative drag from international stocks. So, you know, domestic corporate USA, right, well um, said. I would argue, is, yeah. is, is in pretty rude health right now. Ben, what a tower, Hudson. You, I mean, you call on a bunch of fancy people there. You're probably calling on uh, uh, Henry and Megan over in Vancouver, for all I know. Uh, but, Ben, the fancy people, are they over-owned in equities or not? I mean, are they, are they all in on this bull market, or are you finding real skepticism out there? Yeah, there, there, there is a lot of skepticism. I mean, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of sort of tourists in equities, people that have sort of been sucked into equities but don't have very much uh, conviction. Uh, you know, it's that classic sort of fear of missing out trade. So, you know, there, there's a lot of, um, there's not a lot of conviction. Um, uh, you know, A. And B, uh, I think a lot of people are in the wrong stuff. Um, you know, a lot of people in court text run away from a lot of people. They're, they, you know, they're very nervous about chasing it. And, and there's this sort of siren call of, uh, yeah. sort of international equity versus, versus the U.S. I mean, how can the U.S. just keep outperforming year after year? Um, well, I would make the case that it can again this year, right? right? I think growth expectations outside the U.S. are too high. John, are we allowed to have someone this bullish on? You I are. Mean, I, I mean, are we allowed well, to? Well, we have to upset some of the bearishness at the same time, don't we? There are a lot of people who agree with him. And Ben, does that make you worry that a lot of people actually agree uh, that it is time to stay invested and invest more? You know, I, you're definitely not going to make because, you know, we made 30% last year, right? I mean, that was a complete aberration. I, all I, I'm essentially arguing that, you know, U.S. equities are going to move with earnings here, right? I mean, we, 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 have, a, we have a U.S. earnings recovery, which is going to gradually strengthen throughout the year. I, I don't think valuations are expensive. I think they're, I, you know, I, I think they're well supported. I do think the world has changed enough in terms of tech, in terms of discount rates, in terms of tax rates. That you know, an 18 times multiple is is sort of the new normal, rather than necessarily something to be uh, uh, to be afraid of. Hey Ben, we've got to get you back. Really great stuff, and I don't think we've managed to ben, talk since you. the massive call that you made last year. So congratulations on just a stellar call. Well, he's still up for 10%. 2019. We didn't talk about it, but you know, it's an he missed he missed call. about 10 percent of upside. Yeah, he didn't failed. He? I put out on Twitter, he got it wrong. <laughs> hey Ben, thank you, Ben Lader, there, Tower Hudson Research CEO, formerly of HSBC. <laughs> John Yarmouth comes out of National Industries Money in Louisville a million years ago. He did what you did if you were liberal in 1985. He left the Republican Party and wandered over to the Democrats as well. Speaker Pelosi loves him so much, he put him in charge of budget, which is a good and beautiful thing. And Mr. Yarmouth of Louisville joins us this morning. John Yarmouth, what is the state of your Democratic Party? Is it the Will Rogers Party, where it's an ungodly mess? Or can some order actually come to your Democrats? Well, I, I tell you what, first of all, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a Cleveland Indians fan, so long suffering, but uh, we've been getting better and better and, and uh, I'm, there's always next season. Um, well, 
obviously right now we're having uh, some uh, internal struggles, but I think what I pick up in my district and all around the country is that the only thing Democrats want to do is beat Donald Trump. And I really am optimistic that we'll pull together. And, um, you know, if Bernie Sanders is, is the nominee, Everybody else is going to vote for him. If Bernie Sanders is not the nominee, Bernie Sanders people are going to vote for the nominee because well, everyone knows that, from our perspective, Trump is a worse fate. You you are in a, such a most interesting geography. Of course, your battles with the Senate Majority Leader and, of course, the state of an interesting, interesting politics of Kentucky as well. Is the prescription here the middle ground of Biden Bloomberg or is a prescription here something younger, hipper, like a few of the other candidates? Which way do you cut it? You know, I've, I have not resolved that in my own head. I've listened to both sides, and, and I really hate to waffle on this, but I'm not sure. Uh, I do know, though, that, that the biggest motivating factor right now is, is Donald Trump. And uh, so, you know, as the poll, the Quinnipiac poll showed yesterday, all of the top six beat Donald Trump. Uh, and, and Donald Trump is from 42 to 44 percent. So he looks to be pretty much capped at that number. Uh, so I'm I'm not overly worried about our nominee, about who our nominee is. I do think, however, that the future of our party is going to rest to a certain extent on who can deliver on the promises, the agenda they, they make. And I worry that uh, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren will not be able to deliver on their agenda. Uh, having been in Congress now, but this is my 14th year, uh, you don't get that kind of revolutionary change. In, in Congress. So John, two points you're making here. Mm-hmm. Winning and governing. And I want to just stress test the winning part of it. Do you really think a self-proclaimed democratic socialist can win over people in places like Kentucky and can win other people in the swing states as well? Is this a candidate in Senator Sanders that can really bring the country together? No, but I, I don't think so. But I think what, what Bernie Sanders does is he brings a lot of new voters into the equation. And I think that's the mistake. A lot of kind of conventional analysis of this election is <clears throat> people are making, and that is to assume it's going to be the same voting uh, block. And it's not going to be. There have been 1.4 million new voter registrations in Wisconsin, Michigan, and, and Pennsylvania since 2016. Out of those, uh, 400,000 registered independent, 750,000 registered Democrat, and 250,000 Republican. That's a three-to-one partisan registration advantage. That's going to be awfully hard for Donald Trump to overcome. One, uh, one, one thing I'm struck by, Kevin Cirilli talking about this, of our Bloomberg Washington correspondent from New Hampshire, and he was saying uh, in Iowa, the swing voter, the middle voter was actually looking at either Sanders or Trump. It was not necessarily a moderate Democrat. And I'm wondering how representative that is. In other words, is that really the swing vote is to a more socialist or a more kind of populist tilt, not socialist, populist tilt, rather than the middle ground? Well, I think that is, uh, Lisa, I think that is um, the key. Those are, those are populist voters. Those are people who, they, who think the, the uh, economy, the the advanced, the uh, growing economy, the new economy is is passing them by, and they're looking for a government that's going to to uh, to pay attention to them and to, and to make the uh, economy work for them. So, I think that is an interesting voting block, and that, I think that explains Bernie's appeal to to many of those people. The state. Uh, review is the Midwest, of course, the key states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and the rest. But I would really look at Kentucky as a really interesting 
mix of politics as well. How can the Northeasterners, the East Coast elites, the, how can they do in Kentucky right now? Are you going to sell Senator Warren in Kentucky for that matter? Are you going to sell Michael Bloomberg in Kentucky? Well, I think Michael Bloomberg actually would sell pretty well in Kentucky. I think um, Elizabeth Warren, would. Uh, she's been to my district. She sells incredibly well in Louisville. She is a rock star there, and she would be in Lexington. And, you know, we just won the governor's race um, last fall, and we did it based on the votes in Louisville, Lexington, and the Cincinnati suburbs. I think Elizabeth Warren would appeal very well there. Uh, so it's going to be tough in Kentucky. Donald Trump is still popular in outside of the, the urban areas. And uh, he he will remain popular, I think, through through this election year. And of course, Mitch has sold his soul uh, to Donald <clears throat> Trump and and is running as well. So um, you're going to have a tough tandem there running in the state. John, quick final question, if we can, mm-hmm. just on the budget, if I may, and not on the composition of the budget, just on the size. Is being worried about the size of the budget popular anymore, anywhere? I don't see it anywhere. Uh, the president said nobody cares about the budget. Republicans have basically uh, given up as well. Mick Mulvaney has essentially given up the acting chief of staff who's run the OMB and, and is a real deficit hawk. And I, th- I think one of the things that, that we focus on is, yes, there's there sizable deficits, and they've increased under the Trump administration. But we've got sizable deficits in the in this nation, deficits in infrastructure, deficits in education and and some other areas. And right now, and we've had a number of economists uh, across the spectrum come to our committee and say, you know, now is the time to make those investments. It's not the time to shrink shrink back. Uh, Very quickly here, Congressman, the Louisville Bats, is it the best AAA franchise in American (laughs) baseball? I don't think there's any question about it. We have a a great, great, uh, great stadium right on the the river. There we go. Park and... uh, and we set attendance records every year. It's a, it's a wonderful yeah. place. And, and uh, yeah, now they don't win much, but they Yeah, small detail. Cincinnati, Cincinnati takes all our good players too soon. It has been too long, folks. The Louisville Redbirds, always the best of AAA baseball. Congressman, thank you so much. John Yarmouth of Louisville. Thanks, John. Uh, the Democrat with us this morning from uh, Kentucky. Let's do this. Let's set up a different issue of foreign affairs. As you all know, I adore it. John Farrow, the major thing with Gideon Rowe's effort is he writes with a big font. See, John, over here? I know you love that. One. I know. Like, even old fossils like me can read it. But this time is different. It's a theme. It's about coming home America. But far more, this is the love affair that we have on international relations and foreign policy. And that's exceptionally uh, deep. Gideon Rose joins us now, the force behind Foreign Affairs magazine. Gideon, I want to go to the politics at the moment. The vice president, Vice President Biden, writing an essay for you. Link New Hampshire and the vote today and the desperation of the Biden campaign into what Joe Biden wrote for you at Foreign Affairs. So what Biden wants to do is to go back to the Obama years, uh, not only when he was in power in the White House, uh, but when American policies were more cooperative and trying to help lead the alliance and the international system rather than sort of aggressively assert just U.S. interests alone or uh, America first policies. And the details of that are are pretty frankly common across most of the Democratic candidates. I think that they all want to put an emphasis on reducing inequality. They all want to put an emphasis on cooperative relations with American allies. Um, And the question is, 
will the world actually, first of all, will the Democrats get back in? And second of all, will the world be ready to uh, let America play a role uh, like it used to once it has gotten back uh, its desire to? Gideon, we always remember that debate of former President Barack Obama with Mitt Romney. And Senator Romney brought up the risk that is Russia. And Barack Obama turned around and said the 1980s would, want, would like its foreign policy back. And how wrong the former president, Barack Obama, was on the risk that Russia posed at that given time and the risk that Russia would pose in the coming years. What strikes me as almost insane watching the debates of these Democratic candidates is how little mention of China we get right now. Something stunning happened in the last 24 hours. The DOJ announced charges against four members of China's People's Liberation Army for the 2017 hack of Equifax. And this is what Attorney General William Barr had to say. This was a deliberate and sweeping intrusion into the private information of the American people. Today, we hold PLA hackers accountable for their criminal actions. And we remind the Chinese government that we have the capability to remove the Internet's cloak of anonymity and find the hackers that nation repeatedly deploys against us. Gideon, why do I hear so little from the Democrats on the risk that China poses to the security of this country? Okay, first of all, Jonathan, I'm going to push back a little bit on what you said, because Russia has indeed been trying to play a major spoiler role. They have uh, not just violated borders in places like Ukraine with force and uh, annexation of Crimea, but they've just tried to mess with elections across the board. The Chinese have not done anything like that. The Chinese have been much more responsible than the Russians, and the threat China poses to American hegemony and to the global order is a long-term challenge rather than an immediate crisis. This is not an attempt. These were individual companies and individual actors. It's not at the same level as the direct Russian challenge. But the question of what and how we should compete with China over the long term is a really interesting one. And the big question that nobody wants to talk about is now that China is so big and strong that it can't be uh, squashed and can't be put back in its box, what do they get from that in power? What is the... uh, is the price that America will have to pay for withdrawal. We were dominating the world somewhat. If we no longer want to do that, we're going to have to give up certain things we want, either spheres of influence to other countries or certain issues we used to lecture the world about we won't be able to, or various kinds of things. The question becomes, if anybody wants to deal with China, it's not so much what's your policy that's going to protect America in terms of the immediate Chinese threat, because we're safe from that, It's what is it that you're going to have to give China to accommodate its rise that you don't currently uh, want to give them? Gideon, let's clarify a couple of things. I've made the point that Russia was a risk. It's transpired that they were indeed a very real risk. And it's a risk that the former President Barack Obama did not acknowledge at the time when he sat across from Mitt Romney in that debate. Point one, point two. These are not just rogue actors. This, according to the Attorney General, are people from the People's Liberation Army of China. This is the PLA. The, uh, unfortunately, at this point, the Chinese government has almost at least as much a credibility as the U.S. Attorney General, who has been a politicized uh, person pushing administration line. The question for American foreign policy is not just how to deal with the Chinese Equifax and a few bunch of hackers who are uh, trying to get commercial intelligence and various things. The question is, given that China is such a major part of the global economy, is such a major power in the Pacific can actually dominate certain areas militarily that we used to actually care about. 
What is it that we're going to do about that? We can't just confront them. We can't just bully Gideon, them. Gideon, the point you're making is to be pragmatic. Together. I think that's a, an argument that's going to resonate with some people. But you've also made another argument there. Are, are you saying the Attorney General is politicizing the hack of Equifax in 2017? I'm saying that everything and everybody knows that this administration treats its foreign policy announcements as part of its broader political agenda. And I would look to... Uh, uh, other sources for objective assessments of the Chinese threat rather than official American uh, uh, diplomats and spokesmen at this point. Gideon, that's quite worrying. Well, it is and it isn't. It's not clear you to me. You won't accept the US assessment of the Attorney General. So it's, it's, it's not clear to me that American officials have had a great deal of authority for any time now, and this administration has basically continued that process. And so uh, I think that the, the markets and the world and your listeners are more than uh, intelligent and mature enough to make their own calls on the substance without necessarily taking guidance from the White House. Gideon, there's a question sort of implicit in the discussion that you're having, which is the policy response to China, whether it's national security or moving on to trade. And when we talk about the Democratic primaries, we have not really heard much on what tack they will take with respect to the trade war and sort of trying to take a harder stance with China. What is the prevailing line within the Democratic Party right now and how they plan to go after China, uh, not from a national security standpoint, but from a trade standpoint? So that's a great question. And the answer is there is no single line because there are two major camps in the party. There's the same kind of anti-trade forces that have gotten dominance in the Republican Party under this administration are present in the Democratic Party, uh, certainly among the Sanders voters and many on the progressive side who see trade as having worked against America's interests. But the mainstream foreign policy and trade establishment uh, on the Democratic side, the, the, the centrists and most of the policy people who go into the government believe that something like the TPP mm-hmm. was uh, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a wonderful idea that would be a way to respond to China by coordinating all the non-Chinese forces and countries in the region in in an anti-Chinese alliance. So trade can be a part of your national security question. But the question, if you're going to fight China on trade and security and everything else, where is it going to stop? Nobody knows what the Democrats are going to do towards China because there are different forces in the party pulling in different directions. Gideon Ross, thank you so much. It is Coming Home America, just a rave review, including important essays from Graham Allison, among others, and Thomas Wright. Foreign Affairs, can't say enough about it. I'll do a huge splash on Twitter uh, and out on LinkedIn on it uh, as uh, well. There used to not be a statement to Congress And then there was a thing called the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Act of 1978. And we called these testimonies Humphrey Hawkins testimonies. And they were great. Chairman Greenspan said nothing and Congress, maybe Phil Graham would get sweaty in the Senate and say something. But other than that, John, it was a non-event until the financial crisis. And I've got to say at the moment, Tom, over the last couple of years, it's become a non-event as well. We talk about a grilling on Capitol Hill. What often happens is individual lawmakers make it about their individual constituencies and end up trying to get a campaign video that they can send out to voters in their districts. Yeah, I don't disagree. And it goes on for hours and then it happens again the following day. Stephen Stanley, Amherst Pierpont with us. Stephen, let's go to the mathiness of this before we look at the other headlines. The chairman sees inflation moving closer to 2% over the next few months. Do you agree? Well, I think so. I mean, the the core PCE deflator has been the one that's running 
well below the Fed's target, and just we've got three very low monthly readings in a row dropping out of the 12-month window in January, February, and March. So I think it's it's really just kind of a basis effect, but uh, most of the other indicators yeah. of inflation have been running much closer to two. I, I mean, the statement, I guess, first do no harm, as John mentions, you know, don't talk about the virus in an inflammatory way. What economics will you listen for today from the chairman? Well, I, th- I think you guys... Um, covered a lot of it. I mean, I think what people want to know is is what's the threshold for a material reassessment. And it seems to me the threshold's pretty high. And it probably, as time passes this year, it gets higher because I think the closer you get to the election, the, the higher the bar for the Fed to move in either direction. Um, I think they're very comfortable here. Um, I, you know, I, I do think that the yeah. conversation around inflation is very important because there's been talk of them kind of changing the, uh, the goalposts a little bit with regard to inflation. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they're ready to talk about that too much just yet, but it, it is important to hear what they're saying about inflation yeah. and how they view that. Um, and I think you're right that they want to say as little as possible about the coronavirus. I mean, there was well, one, literally one sentence in the whatever it was, 50- or 60-page monetary policy report that came out on Friday about the virus. And, you know, the Newswire headlines were, yeah. you know, virus takes key role in Fed's outlook. So they can't right. really say too well, much about it. The market's speaking right now. We got a 108 on the euro right now. 108.95, weaker euro off of these headlines. You know, Stephen, there's a question, and and I think I want to go back to the point that John raised, which is it becomes an exercise in political punditry on the part of the elected officials more than any kind of actual information from Fed Chair Powell. And I wonder how much that is exacerbated by the repo operation of the New York Fed. And today we saw yet another over subscription of the 14-day repo operation, the third in a row that was oversubscribed, more bids uh, from banks than there were available. And I'm wondering, a lot of people view this as a subsidy for the banks. How much will that be at the center of the questioning? It sounds like it's going to be a big topic. I mean, uh, they, they were, there was a letter sent from a number of senators um, in advance of the testimony uh, about that. So I think it is going to be something kind of a populist angle of, hey, you're, you know, you're subsidizing the banks again. What are you doing? Um, and, I, you know, I think Powell has certainly been working very hard on making sure he has a good answer to that question because it's definitely going to come up. Are they right? Are the politicians right that the Fed has been subsidizing the banks? Uh well, I mean, I I think that depends on how you want to look at it. I think from the Fed standpoint, they would say that the that that's almost irrelevant in the sense that they had to do what they needed to do to make sure that the financial system was running smoothly. Um, if it's a small subsidy to bank to banks, so be it. I, I think in reality, um, the, the Fed had no other choice. I mean, if they wanted to uh, support and smooth over the repo market, uh, you know, the the operations that they've conducted were really their only. Uh, way to do that in a in a in a timely manner. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about a standing repo facility, and I think that if they were to go that route, it would kind of lessen some of this concern because a standing repo facility would be much more broadly available than what we have now, which is um, just goes through the primary dealers. Uh, but that's gonna it's gonna take a lot of work to get that going. I mean, they have to onboard a whole new group of counterparties and set up all the rules and everything, and and that takes time. So. If they do go the route of a standing repo facility, I suspect at least part of the rationale in their minds will be so that we're 
kind of giving everybody a chance, so to speak, rather than just limiting it to the primary dealers, as is the case now. Stephen, many people in this market think the Fed is conducting QE through its bill buying. The Federal Reserve Chairman today repeating his pledge that the Fed will slow bill buying. How do they do that without a market disruption, given that there are many, many people in this market, I'm sure you've spoken to a few of them, that believe that bill buying is QE? Yeah, I, well, the only thing they can do really is is to be very upfront and and very transparent about what they're doing and give us plenty of notice. And and you know, Powell has started to do that. We we got a lot of good color at the uh, January press conference, and I suspect we'll hear more of the same today. But uh, they just have to. All they can do is make sure that people kind of understand right. where we're headed, and and if the market chooses to react to that, then right. um, there's really not much the Fed can do. Steve Zellin, you're a dying old optimist. You were brilliant coming out of the, the depths of the financial crisis saying, look, we're going to survive. We're going to see a banded GDP better than uh, good. We had Benjamin later on this morning from London, who's a very optimistic on the equity markets. He's calling about an earnings trough as well. Is it the same thing in the Amherst Pierpont Woods? Is it is it the same, you know, 1.8% GDP and we're just grossly misjudging the resiliency of the American American economy and we get a two point X statistic that surprises, say the fourth of July? I, I would say that's certainly my view and, and obviously the, the you know the the virus situation kind of posts some clouds on the on the near term horizon, but I, I I do believe that the um the, the US China trade dispute last year uh, had a pretty significant drag effect on the economy, and that coming out of that, we should do better. We've seen a number of better-than-expected economic uh, releases for January. We've seen a significant improvement in consumer and business confidence over the last month or two. Um, in the very near term, obviously, we're you know we're kind of struggling through this virus thing and trying to get our hands around the how much of an impact that's going to have uh here and, and globally but i do think that at least in the first half of the year if we can get past the, the virus i think the economy can do a little better than two percent and to build on that what does that do for the federal reserve how do they respond to that given the fact that right now uh people are expecting at least one rate cut by the end of the year yeah, I think that will probably slowly fade if the data come in the way that I expect. I mean, the Fed has been very clear that they don't expect to have to move anytime soon. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm on board with that. I think right now it's a steady with a slight easing bias, right? I mean, it, it's more likely if we're going to get a move in the next few months that it'd be an ease and a tighten. I think if, if the data do play out a little better than generally expected, then you just kind of move back to um, no bias. And, and potentially, if it, you know, if the data is strong enough, obviously you could move to a bias in the other direction. But the reality is I, I just don't see the Fed moving before yeah. the election. Where's business investment right now? Is there any spirit to business investment given all these unknowns? Well, as I said, I think there was a, uh, you know, there was a significant pop in business confidence that came on the back of the uh, U.S.-China deal. Yep. Uh, I think there is scope for a, a nice improvement in business investment. Although, you know, if I'm involved in anything in Asia right now, I'm probably sitting on my hands again until until right. we get our, you know, this virus yeah. thing put away. Very valuable. Stephen Stanley, thank you so much for the Amherst Pierpont uh, this morning. Following up on that Sprint T-Mobile deal, there were four wireless carriers. Now there's going to be three. We finally get this T-Mobile Sprint deal done almost two years in the making. Regulatory hurdles, both at the federal and state level, all have been cleared. This deal is going to go through. Giving us what's the bottom line here, we talked to our good friend John Butler. He covers all things telecom for Bloomberg Intelligence. John joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, John, what's the practical implications of 
T-Mobile and Sprint getting together finally. So finally, the deal is done. It's great news for both T-Mobile and Sprint. For T-Mobile in particular, it gives them access to Sprint's uh, 2.5 gigahertz spectrum, which is a big fat block of nationwide spectrum that is ideally suited for 5G. And so this whole deal here, the approval of the deal is gonna allow T-Mobile to really move forward, uh, I think quite aggressively on 5G. So do consumers, I mean, what's, gonna, what's it gonna mean for consumers? Is there any, gonna be any real difference in the marketplace? I don't think so. You know, I mean, that was the concern coming in. The states really thought, God, you know, if we allow these companies to merge, prices are going to go up across the board. The reality is the wireless business is a commodity business, and I think there's sort of a cap on pricing in general that's out there. Yeah. You know, you can see it particularly at Christmas time, you know, the wireless carriers really get into it. And so prices tend right. to fluctuate over the course of the year, but on balance, they tend to move down over time. On a game theory basis, what do Verizon and AT&T do? If it's a triopoly now and they have to merge and go against the pink T-shirt and all the market share <laughs> the pink T-shirt's taking, is there an active visible response from Verizon or AT&T? I think Verizon pushes really hard on the C-band spectrums coming at year end. You know, again, T-Mobile now has access to a big fat chunk of mid-band spectrum, which is ideal for 5G. The C-band spectrum is very similar to that spectrum block. And I yeah. think for Verizon to compete on a level playing field now with T-Mobile, right. they need that spectrum. Right. So they're, they're actually going to, I think, really step up and be aggressive in most okay. major markets. John, I still, haven't down I still haven't downloaded Catalina on the Apple, you know, the major software upgrade of Apple because there's so many glitches uh, within it. Why do I need 5G? Am I gonna download, you know, is a phrase download to get 5G? Do I want it? I think it? 5G, it's a great question, Tom. I actually think 5G is more well suited to enterprise applications and that's where the carriers see a lot of money and margin. For you and me, in the short run, I think it represents okay. a step up okay. in capacity, but just not much more. This is the time I got to go to Apple and you're just omnibus coverage on it. You've been brilliant about staying in it. And the product Apple's going to go out of business. They're terrible. And Butler said, ah, wait a minute. What's your next essay you're going to write for Bloomberg Intelligence on Apple? Is it on, is it on services? Is it on unit dynamics? I mean, what's the thing you're thinking about of Apple into 2020? So in 2020, the, what I'm watching for Apple is, number one, the diversification of the iPhone product line. We have a low-cost iPhone coming out. Initially, they said in March, according to Bloomberg, I think that gets pushed out by coronavirus, but not much, probably a couple of months. That gives them play at the low end of the portfolio. And then we have a 5G phone coming in September. <laughs> As you mentioned, longer term, I think Apple's trying to make that pivot from hardware to software and services. So I'm keeping a close eye on the content business and also the fintech business and health apps to see what they do there. It's, it's early days, but I, I think that's an important new vertical for them. So John, you mentioned kind of the- a Vertical, the, that's Bloomberg that's, Intelligence that's speak. Talk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so kind of this- has a vertical <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the kind of the mid-range phone in terms of price, is that, 
because we've talked about in the past markets like China, like India, mass markets, uh, but not necessarily markets where the high-end phone is that competitive from a consumer perspective. Is this new mid-range phone kind of targeting some of those international markets? Yes, it is. So it's a sequel to the iPhone SE, if you remember that. That was a $399 phone. This will be priced much the same way. And in terms of look and feel, I think it's going to be fashioned after the iPhone 8 in terms of what the body of the phone is going to look like. And like the SE, the guts are going to be all updated, the updated processor, operating system, uh, apps, and so forth. So, you know, it taps the high end of that yeah. mid-range market, and it expands Apple's addressable market opportunity and gives them a play in those markets like India and China, where the, you know, the sort of uh, iPhone uh, 11 is out of reach, I think, for the average consumer. Is I don't I don't agree with that because they get they you can do the financing and it's like 50, 60 bucks a month, right? It is, but you know, if you're making a fraction of the average income here in the U.S., it's it's still a pricey proposition. You mean internationally? I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. When when do we have to stop buying Apple stuff for our children? Uh, there's got to be. Did an you see age. a memo on that from John Butler? <laughs> no, and I got my, my my twins are approaching the 24th birthday, and, and I, you're that, still... that feels like the time I need to just cut them off, right? You think so? Okay, that's good what luck that's with good. that. Yeah. yeah, good luck indeed. <laughs> John Butler, brilliant on Apple, and of course, I, I mean, what do you buy, hold, sell, and busted his chops, folks? <laughs> 323 a share. What was it, 200 something? And they're going out of business. Yep, exactly. So I think Tim the Cook's secret is out on the 5G phone and, and the low end phone. The key for Apple is they need to keep the momentum going in the iPhone uh, product line as we get into 21 because they're going to lap tougher cops. John Butler, thanks so much for joining us. John Butler covers all things, covers all things telecom, phones, all that kind of Apple. fun stuff. Apple for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, and we appreciate him joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.